This is Why We Write, a podcast of Lesley University. Each week, we bring you conversations with authors from the Lesley community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. This is episode two. I'm Caroline Heller. I'm on the faculty of Leslie University, and I'm here with the acclaimed writer and novelist Rachel Kadish, who's also on the faculty of Leslie's MFA in writing program. Rachel is the author of three novels, From a Sealed Room, Tolstoy Lied, A Love Story, and most recently, The Weight of Ink. She's received several notable literary prizes for her body of work, including a Coret Award, a coveted Pushcart Prize, and multiple citations in Best American Short Stories, and most recently the 2017 National Jewish Book Award and the inaugural Association of Jewish Libraries Fiction Prize. The Nobel laureate Toni Morrison said this about Rachel Kadish, that she is a most gifted writer, astonishingly adept at nuance, narration, and the politics of passion. I could not agree more. I finished uh, The Weight of Ink about five days ago, and uh, I have to say uh, that it knocked my socks off. It is, um, it's really quite a masterpiece, and I don't say that lightly. Rachel, tell us the story of how this story or these two stories really came to be in your mind. Caroline, thank you, and thank you for, for having me. So I often start writing when something is bothering me and I don't know quite what to make of it, and I have to make up a story. I have to write something to figure out what I think about it. There's a wonderful quote, uh, Henry James, um, that says, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? And that's often how I work. So one of the things that was troubling me uh, some years ago was a quote from Virginia Woolf where she poses the question, what if William Shakespeare had had an equally talented sister? What would have been the fate of that woman? And Woolf answers her own question, and uh, the answer is succinct and depressing. It's, she died young, alas, she never wrote a word. Now, I think you can't argue that that is the most likely fate for a woman with that kind of capacious intelligence and talent in that time, given the realities of women's lives, the restrictions on women's education, um, the realities of domestic labor. Um, most, I mean, it is the most likely fate for a, a woman in that situation. But I couldn't help kind of shadowboxing with that question. You know, what if, what, what, what would it take for a woman with that kind of talent, not necessarily a... A, a playwright, but just someone with that kind of intelligence not to die without writing a word or without mm -hmm. creating art of some kind in mm -hmm. that time. So I thought, okay, I want to write a historical novel to explore that. And I went looking for a time period, and there were certain things I was, I was looking for. Um, and I stumbled across uh, some materials about the 17th century Jewish community of Amsterdam. And I started reading, and the more I read, the more fascinated I became. Now, when I, I say I didn't know anything about this community, I did not know that Amsterdam's Jews were Sephardic. I didn't know they were refugees from the Spanish Portuguese Inquisition. I didn't know that that community had 
excommunicated uh, Benedict Spinoza. I didn't know Spinoza was Jewish. I didn't know anything about philosophy. I was really starting from zero. But what got me was um, I was doing some research and I was reading a wonderful book called Betraying Spinoza by Rebecca Neuberger mm -hmm. Goldstein. And in it, she talks about Spinoza's excommunication. Now, up until that time, excommunication in this community was not the big scary thing it sounds like. It was a slap on the wrist. It was your excommunicated till you say you're sorry, or for two weeks, and then say you're sorry, and then you can come back. It was not that big a deal um, until Spinoza. And then when they excommunicated him, they gave him this absolute fire and brimstone ban that was unprecedented. And I was reading the language of the ban. It's, you know, God's fury will smoke against him. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes you read a historical document and all the human emotions are right there. And I was reading this document and you could hear the fear. These people were terrified. And I suddenly put it all together in my head. Oh, they're refugees. They, they've just escaped the Inquisition. They know how bad things can get. They found this perch of safety in Amsterdam. And here's this guy and he's messing it up for them because he's sounding, frankly, atheist at a mm -hmm. time when people were literally ripped limb from limb for discussing atheism. And they were afraid he was going to mess things up for him, so they gave him the hardest, fiercest ban. And when I, I read that, I thought, I know these people because I grew up among refugees. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was born on the run. And there was something about that fierce determination to rebuild, the beauty of that, the fear that everything is hanging from a thread. Everything could fall apart at any moment. It was so familiar, even across the centuries and different um, communities, different issues. So I thought, these are the people I want to write about. And then so I, I, um, I thought, I'm going to put my woman with a, a brilliant mind in that community. And so I thought of this, you know, I would have a, a blind rabbi who needs a scribe. And he would go, and then I heard about this small hidden Jewish community of refugees in London uh, and the mission from Amsterdam to go sort of re-educate them. And I thought, okay, she would be part of going to London and the rabbi would need a scribe. And so she would get access to these documents and this education a woman wouldn't normally have. And um, so that's how I got started. And then it was improvised. I don't outline in advance. I can't outline in advance. Um, I have reasons for that. But um, And so I really just wrote the book in the order in which it appears, and then I had to edit it a lot <laughs> to make sense of it. Wow. Beautifully, beautifully stated. I um, All that history that you describe and the meanings and Spinoza, I, I mean, I certainly I knew who Spinoza was, but all of that history came through so beautifully in the novel. And I... And I don't want readers, potential readers who are listening to this to be in any way intimidated by that wealth of history and philosophy because what you do, Rachel, so beautifully is you make it available and you, and you turn it into a page turner. Thank you. Well, that was, it was important to me. Um, History isn't some abstract thing um, that, you know, I, I mean, I, I think the objection I have to the way history is sometimes taught when we're younger um, is that it's a list of facts to memorize. In fact, history, right, it's all around us. We're swimming in it all the time. We're in history right now. Uh, and history, if it's told properly, should be, should be riveting. It should be scary. I mean, when you look back in history, these people weren't walking around knowing where they are in the history textbook. They didn't have the soundtrack from the movie telling them when to be scared because the music gets scary. They were just living their lives and then crazy things happened. 
and that's history. And so when you tell a story set in history, you need to, it needs to be as immediate and personal and emotional as all our lives are. Yeah. What you're describing um, really resonates in terms of what I felt was perhaps one of the major themes of the story. There were several one of them, through this remarkable character, Esther Velasquez, who you created, this woman who who inspired you, who never really lived, but we wish had, um, around her writing and around the other story of Helen and Aaron is the challenge of who owns history, yes. who presents history, who archives it, who, whose story gets told, uh, and how, and who gets credit for it. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that within the book? Yes, well, with, you know, within the book and in the larger world, it's such an important question. Who gets, first of all, when there are raw materials, when there are documents, when there are artifacts, artifacts, who gets them? Who gets to physically hold on to them? You know, we have such a long history in Western culture of, of plunder, of things in museums that were stolen from other other people, other cultures. Um, but I also think there's there's the question of who um, who a story originated with, who gets to tell it, and who gets to sort of publicly relate to it. And all of those politics are played out in the book. In the end, I wanted, um, I wanted the most expansive view of history um, that I could come up with, the sense that this is a human story that belongs to all of us. And yet at the same time, I agree with much of what one of my characters is saying about, you know, people from the outside can't just come in and grab these documents and say, you know, this is, this is ours. So it was uh, one of the nice things about writing fiction is you can take an issue that is really complicated and that you feel torn about, and you can look at it from a lot of different angles, rather than having to come out and say, you know, this one way is the way it is. Um, but you said something about um, Esther, wishing Esther existed. I, I wish Esther existed too. But one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was doing the research was um, about how important it was that every piece of this story be plausible. And I was, I was kind of a fanatic about research. I went to cr- some crazy lengths to, to do the research I needed so that when I was writing a scene, I knew uh, what my 17th century characters were wearing and how heavy it was, you know, what that clothing is made of. And um, when they're eating a meal, what food is on the table? What are the utensils? What's the, what are the table manners? There's a window. What is that? It's that wavery old glass because they couldn't make big panes of flat glass like they can now. What's growing in the garden on the outside? What's the window lever made of? I had to research all of that and I was very specific about what kind of language I could and couldn't use in the book and the reason I was um, I was such a fanatic about the research was because I wanted to be able to say um, at the end of it this book took me so long to write I was never quite sure I was going to reach the end of it but if I ever reached the end of it and if the book was ever published I thought well people are going to say to me okay Esther you know great character but obviously no you know she didn't exist and nobody did what she did because you know we have the records and we know that there's six or seven women whose writing we have it all from the 17th century who wrote anything to do with philosophy it was pretty spare and um all of them were uh, you had to be uh, either royalty nobility or childless usually all three um and there's certainly there were no uh, poor people who wrote there were no poor women there were no jewish women who wrote philosophy of the time um, and I wanted to be able to say, 
yes, Esther Velasquez is fictitious, but how do we know that somebody didn't do what she did? Because if you think about it, um, in order that if you look back in history, there were so many people who were banned from um, intellectual, artistic activity because of lack of access, because of race, religion, gender. And look, just because something's against the rules doesn't mean people aren't trying to do it. People try to do what the grass does. They try to grow up through pavement. Most can't. Most of us are defeated. But some people do break through. And in order to break through and to live a life of the mind or an artistic life or something like that in that time, a woman would have had to do it under a man's name. And we know now that a lot of the music that we thought was written by Felix Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn was actually written by his sister Fanny. So if there were a woman who did what Esther did and managed to find a way to live a life of the mind and write philosophy and correspond with other thinkers of her time, which was such a dangerous thing to do, uh, I mean, people were, were killed for things like this. If she managed to do it, she would have had to do it under the name of a white Christian man. So if people did this and they did it successfully, nobody knew. That's how you succeeded in doing it. So are we that confident? And I think that hubristic to think that we have discovered all of the women who wrote under assumed names and made art under assumed names. I, I assume we've not. I assume that there are some women out there whose work we have seen and heard we just don't know it's by women. As I met Esther throughout, there I have to say there wasn't any moment when she felt in any way implausible. So I'm so glad you I'm so glad you just said what you said. What well, I want to read a section, uh, just actually a, a very short few lines um, when Esther is in London and she's sort of discovering the London world, the, the visceral London world. And, and I think these lines, Rachel, sort of foreshadow another major theme in the book, which I found fascinating. Um, so here is describing, uh, Rachel Kadish describing Esther, an ecstasy of ink, e e Esther out in, in the city, an ecstasy of ink, every paragraph laboring to outline the shape of the world, the yellow light of a lamp on leaves of paper, the ivory black impress of words re reasoning line by line, yet in the confused picture in her mind, the hands caressing and turning those lamp-lit pages were not her own but a stranger's. She didn't know which she wanted more, the words or the hands, the touch to her spirit or to her skin. Esther, to me, and Helen as well, felt in both times, and they were far apart, that as women in the world, they had to somehow make a choice between the desires of the mind and the desires of the body which was just it, how that played out throughout the book was so stunning to me. Could you talk a little bit about that? I don't think it, it's appropriate to call it a dichotomy, but let's call it that just mm -hmm. for, for the moment. Right. I think that historically, and often still today, women are asked to choose Women are asked to choose between a life of the mind and a life of the body. Certainly in Esther's time, 
women were given a life of the body and were not really offered a life of the mind. And when I said earlier that the women who did manage to write philosophy were, with one exception, all childless, that one exception from the 17th century was Anne of Conway. Uh, she had one child, um, but she was nobility, and she had what sounds, in, in modern terms, probably sounds like migraines. So other people took care of her son, and she would take to her bed and write philosophy. So it was um, the life of the mind, the life of the body was, was not a combination that was readily available to women. But it was very important to me that when I wrote the novel, I did not split those parts of my characters apart, even though the world was trying to split them apart. I wanted Esther, when she had a thought, it was connected to her life. When she had an experience in her body, it went into her philosophy. When she's ill, when she's in love, all of these experiences, grief, ecstasy, are connected to her philosophy. And I did not want to buy into this whole false dichotomy that people are often, because women often have been corralled into this thing, well, you are either a mother or you're a thinker. And um, you are a woman or you are a mind. And you're not both. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember, I remember on an orientation trip I took before college, one of the counselors saying to us, and this is a bunch of young women about to start at an Ivy League school, saying to us, well, there's two kinds of girls, either pretty or smart. That stuff was still going on. I hope it's not now, but it was. So, um, but the experience, I wanted Esther's experience to be fully human, which means she is in a body and she has a mind. Yes. And speaking of fully human, another aspect of the story that, that I really felt enormously close to was being alone or being aligned with another human being there were there were I won't I'll try very hard not to give anything away but there were instances of surprising alliances and also many instances of fearing being alone I think of mm -hmm. Mary particularly yes. um, so it wasn't just the life of the body and the mind in terms of those desires, but the desire for connection and the Jewish community, etc. Could you talk about that felt too uh, to be a big theme in the book. Could you speak to that, Rachel? Uh, yes, and I think um, I, I see it in a lot of situations I look at where very often we have a choice between being in a community and saying what we really think. Now, the ideal kind of community has room for everyone to say what they really think and still be part of the group, and it has room for diversity, but many communities don't. And so very often, um, and people find this, whether in their, whether it's a religious community, a political community, a family, sometimes even a relationship, you, you face this choice of, a, a choice between can I be who I am or can I be with people? Because sometimes it seems impossible to be both. And for certainly for someone trying to do what, what Esther is trying to do, it's a very stark choice. And yet there are these surprising alliances. That, you know, once people start speaking very honestly about what they really feel, they find allies in places they did not expect to find them. I think that actually goes back to the passage you read about the loneliness of writing and reading and then the, the communion in those acts. And uh, there's a, another section later in the book, uh, which I 
I would I would offer to read, but I won't because there's a spoiler in there. <laughs> where Esther talks about um, the desire, what it, the, the physical act of writing, and the the imagining that there's someone out there who will hear, who will understand, who will relate to those words and connect. And in a sense, perhaps the the friendship pair that means the most to me in the entire book is Esther and Helen, even though they never physically meet. Esther is writing these documents in the 17th century as a lone voice, not sure anyone will ever read them, not sure her paper, she saying her papers need to be burned. And Helen is finding them in uh, our contemporary times as a somewhat lonely person who needs something that these papers give to her. Beautiful. It's your words right now, Rachel, are making me remember. Hopefully this isn't the line you didn't want to say, but at one point when Helen is feeling she can't accomplish what she wants to accomplish, she really describes Esther as her beacon. I can't do this without Esther. It was so beautiful. Um, I guess I want to go from here because we're talking about friendship, we're talking about alliance, we're talking about aloneness or not feeling alone, to family. There's mm-hmm. some central families in the story, the Costa de Mendezes, the Halevis. Mm-hmm. Um, in a certain way, not they're not the stars of the story, but they hold important roles can you talk a little bit about the role of these families in the story and whether they have any symbolic value in terms of in terms of not being alone? I am now trying to think how to do this without spoilers. Um, I think the the Halevi family and the Da Costa family are the, the kind of family that are seen as pillars of a community. They, um, to put it in modern terms, they show up, they are dressed right, they donate, they support the, the institutions in the community that are highly visible. And there are those who do it with a, a good heart, and there are those who stop supporting the institutions when they're no longer visible. And so you see varieties of of behavior in those families. Um, But I think those families, as as powerful and burnished as they can seem on the outside, on the inside, there's a lot of pressure to not speak your mind, to conform. And certainly the character of Catherine, I think, is only freer to speak her mind closer to her death and I think um, I don't think I'm giving away too much because when we when we meet Catherine she's older and she's quite ill and illness in a sense frees her to speak her mind on behalf of her daughter and um, and about what she has seen in the world and there's another character I won't talk about because that would be a very big spoiler but his difference from his family is uh, it, it um, condemns him at a certain point I felt reading the book, which um, I feel when I read a really, really good book, that the structure somehow at the choices that the writer made, and I'm thinking mostly of the structure, and I'll just mention that it's, you know, these time periods of Helen and Aaron and Esther in her world are, are juxtaposed, and that feels somehow inevitable, like there could not 
have been another way of writing this book, just like there could not have been another way of painting that picture when it really works. But I imagine through the process of writing that that didn't feel inevitable to you. Can you talk a little bit about finding that structure, that way of organizing the book? Um, so I'm not sure if what I'm going to say is going to be the most dis- dissatisfying answer ever, <laughs> or if um, it'll be quirky enough to be satisfying. So I um, I did not plan in advance. I didn't I didn't make that outline, and the reason I don't is that. I'm, uh, and all my students at Leslie know this, they're probably sick of hearing me say this, but I believe in letting character drive everything. For me, what plot is, it's, it's not something that I decide on in advance. What plot is, is it's the outcome of, of an equation. The equation goes characters plus pressure equals plot. Mm-hmm. Or character mm-hmm. times pressure or whatever. Um, you have to know who your characters are, who your people are, and what kind of pressures they're under. So um, if you if you put, two, so everybody's different, right? You and I are different people. If you put the two of us under an identical pressure, we would react differently. If you put a hundred people under the same pressure, you would have a hundred different reactions. Some might be similar, but none of them will be identical. So that's a hundred different plots. Okay. Um, and so when I'm when I'm writing, I have to figure out who my people are and what pressures they're under. So I start very simply. I start with an image. I started writing this book with a voice, 17th century woman. I knew she had something to confess. And I wrote that first paragraph. It's the opening of the book. Um, Let me begin afresh, perhaps this time, to tell the truth. She's lied before. Now she's going to tell the truth. I had no idea what she had to confess. I just knew that she had betrayed someone and that she would do it all over again, but she was sorry she had to. And then I wrote those couple of paragraphs. I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then I turned the page or insert page return, whatever we do now. And I had this image of like, I don't know, Judy Dench sitting in her office. And I I thought there's going to be this this British non-Jewish woman. She's near retirement. She's sitting in her office and... I just started writing her voice, and she and somebody is late, and she's impatient. And then I thought um, she would have gotten this call to go because somebody found 17th century documents. And then I just was off and running. Um, and then I thought, well, she has a hand tremor, and there's a reason I, I um, gave her a hand tremor. And um, and so she would need help with the documents, and she gets this cocky American postgrad, uh, postgraduate student, and that's a pressure because she can't stand him, and she doesn't want to need anyone, and she does. So how's she going to react to that pressure? And then Aaron, the American grad student, he's failing at his dissertation. Well, that's a pressure. How's he going to react? And then I set them in motion, and, and they just start going, and I feel like I'm following them to see what happens. Um, the alternating between contemporary and historical, it felt like, it just felt intuitive. I think having grown up around such storytellers and always having this intense history popping into my life. You know, I'm sitting with my mother's family and it's like, yeah, that's when we were in Russian prison past the salt. And it's just, you're used to (laughs) history just pops up and smacks you in the head when you're not expecting it. And you either, you have to figure out what you're going to do with that. You can ignore it or you can interact with it. So I like that structure of modern characters being faced with a piece of history that pops into their lives and alternating um, and also, I, it made it easier to get into the 17th century. I mean, that stuff's intimidating. 17th century language and history, it's a lot to learn. And I, I didn't want to just 
I didn't want to just dive into the 17th century. I wanted to step in bit by bit with my historian characters. And in the end, I feel like the book is structured like a, a mystery or like a detective story, but because historians are basically detectives. That's what they're doing. Yes. So they're, they're trying to solve the mystery, and they go down some false roads, um, and they make some wrong turns. So. Everyone is a sleuth including Esther, who's a sleuth of truth, right? <laughs> yes. Um, this idea of history far away and recent um, brings me to a question of the, the sort of whispered role of the Holocaust in mm-hmm. the book. Um, Helen has a relationship to the Holocaust through a, a, a love relationship and a trip to Israel, which is impactful right. in big ways. Yes. And Aaron, too, through his falling in love with someone who relates strongly to to the Holocaust. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I... I, I Again, I hope I don't give anything away. The character that it is historically important to Helen's life. Um, There are several references to his really living through the dead, feeling immersed in the dead, and and for that reason, Helen and he have a hard time finding each other, connecting. Am I correct that the Holocaust is a whispered presence, and could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think for me, it's just, it was just part of the background growing up. So it's in there, it's in the, it's in the backdrop of a lot of what I write, and some of the characters, and I, I don't mind saying this because I think it comes up pretty early, early in the book, um, Helen was in love with a man, Dror, who was a Holocaust survivor. And she is grappling with that history, and he's grappling with how to bring her into it because he loves her. And he wants to bring her into it, but he needs to make sure... He wants to bring her into his world, but he needs to make sure she understands what she's really getting into. I think his biggest fear is probably that she will come with him only so far and then understand what his past and potentially their future living together in Israel in the early days of the state is going to ask of her and his fear is that then she will flee. So he wants her to really understand what she's getting into by crossing this line to be with him. And he has to also make some sacrifices to cross that line to be with her. But those are questions that I, I grew up around, obviously. You know, I'm a generation uh, or two, I guess, separated from those characters. Lovely. Let me, I think we're, we're probably nearing the end, um, and I, I, I want to emphasize that, that just the, the import of the concepts that this book deals with, but also... I, on, I want to emphasize for no reader to be intimidated by the import of those concepts. And let me engage you for a moment, Rachel, with those concepts, secularism, religion, truth, nature. Um, 
all just enormous wavy concepts, how one comes to truth. Science is even in there, even though I don't think it's a word yet. Um, maybe one way to approach thinking about those concepts is to ask you whether any of these concepts in your own mind changed for you in the writing of the book, in the creation of the book. Sure. Um, so I, I should just say when you were talking about, you know, weighty subjects, but that um, uh, people shouldn't be scared away. Uh, I, I, well, I had to uh, get myself not to be scared away, but the fact is that, um, I mean, I, I never took a philosophy class in my life. This vocabulary was very foreign to me. But in, in fact, what I came to understand was that these are just all the same things that we all think about and have been debating about and that my, my uh, tween and teenage kids talk about with their friends. Like, do you think the world is good? Do you think that, you know, how can we believe in God after fill in the blank? after the Holocaust, after an atrocity, after a mass shooting? How can we believe in God in a world in which there are all the horrible things we see? And um, I was asked in a, at a reading I gave, are Esther's philosophical questions your philosophical questions? And I, actually, I just laughed aloud. My first response, I think I actually said, I don't have any philosophical questions. I mean, philosophy is... It was so intimidating to me when I started writing this book, and it still is. But then I, I paused and I thought, no, I actually do have these questions. Esther's questions are mine. You know, how, how do we believe in good in this world? How do we put it all together in our heads? It's just that there's a philosophical language that goes with that that is not my language. Um, but I think, um, and, and in order to learn that language for the book, I had to do a lot of reading to, to put thoughts that... I'm already having that, that all of us are already having into that language. And it was really hard for me to, uh, to get that language. I'm like, you know, those um, Newton cradles thing with like five silver balls in a row. And I don't know if this works on a podcast because you can see my hands, but the listener can't see my hands. But, you know, they, a, a, a ball gets pulled back and it hits the string, you know, click, 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 and they go back and forth. That was my brain with philosophy. Like I can get one sentence at a time. I, I can work really hard and understand that sentence, but then it knocks all the other sentences out that I had worked so hard for before. And I can only hold on to one thing at a time. Um, and at one point, I um, I emailed my agent in despair. I said, I'm, I feel like I'm lip syncing philosophy. I said, I'm, I'm the Milli Vanilli of metaphysics. Like, I just, I can't do this. Um, but eventually, when I when I kept reading it, it started making sense to me. But really, all, all that, um, the philosophy language and all of that, it's just a different set of words for what we're all wrestling with all the time. How to be in a body, how to be in a relationship and still be yourself. What do you do when you're around, when you're in a community, a family, a religious or, or school community, and everybody says something and you think, I'm not sure I agree with that. These are very human questions. And what I love about studying history is I always have to remember people 350 years ago, they, they didn't live on a different plane of existence. They were just like us. They were in bodies. They had these questions. They felt pain. They felt unsure. They thought, do I speak up now or do I go along to get along? So Lovely and a gorgeous way to end, I think, this, this podcast because... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Rachel. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode two of Why We Write. 
Next week, we've got a fascinating conversation with filmmaker Cheryl Egan Donovan, who believes that Shakespeare may actually have been an A-list playboy named Edward de Vere. Here is a sneak peek of that interview. Well, that people thought, okay, well, if it wasn't the guy from Stratford, because there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it was him, who mm-hmm. else could it have been? So Francis Bacon yeah. um, was thought to be the writer from, for many years, and uh, people still believe that Christopher Marlowe could have been the writer. Mm-hmm. And people have, have, have said, you know, could have been a woman, it could have been Queen Elizabeth who wrote the plays. I mean, she clearly used the plays, I think, the Shakespeare plays, mm-hmm. to, you know, make statements um, politically. So there have been many, many candidates over mm-hmm. the years, but Edward de Vere, I think, you know, is still the leading candidate because his own extant poems and letters and his life experience so clearly match the works of Shakespeare. For more information on Why We Write and Leslie University, check out our show notes or go to leslie.edu slash podcast.